This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. About twice a year, I think there's no way it could go on to tomorrow. There's just no way. And those moments, what gets me going again is the mission. It's that mission that, hey, like, it is worth leaving those kids at home sometimes to go and kick butt out at work because what we do at work will change lives of other people, which just by raising kids, I can't do. Welcome to The Real Real, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Natalie Barbu. Today is an episode with an amazing guest, and I'm so excited to share it. But before we get into that, I want to give you a little recap on my week because I was just in San Francisco and it really got me thinking about content and just the type of content I want to film and record and produce and all of that stuff. So obviously I have this podcast, which I love. And, you know, obviously half the episodes are a bit more casual. Half of them are interviews with usually entrepreneurs, business owners, influencers, people like that. But uh, the other ones are like the solo ones. They're somewhat casual. Sometimes I think I give, you know, business tips and things like that. But I I would say my podcast falls into the business category, but just, I guess, a longer form of it and giving other people my platform. Anyways, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what I'm going to post on TikTok and YouTube because I have felt such a rut. And being in San Francisco, I realized that the tech world is incredibly bro-y, but there are so many women that are still in the tech space, even if it's not majority women, there's still so many women in the world that want to be in the tech space and are either scared to go into it because there's not that much female representation or women representation, but there's also not a lot of, there's just not a lot of content on out there. That's what I'm trying to get at. And I remember thinking the same thing when I was an engineering student. When I was an engineering student in school, I thought, wow, I'm scared to get in, go into engineering because there's literally no girls. Every time I tell people that I'm going into it, they're like, really? Like, so shocked. Like, it was always so annoying telling people what I was doing. And I always felt like there was a lack of people posting engineering content on the internet. I felt like anytime I looked it up, it was all dudes. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I know that there's girls in this because one, hello, me. And two, I have girls in my classes. Like, what type of content are we watching here? So I feel like that is missing in the tech space. And I want to kind of translate what I did with engineering in college to like social media with TikTok and YouTube, but being a founder of a tech company. So that just got me thinking about that when I was in San Francisco, because I just started noticing like how bro-y it is and how intimidating it is for women to enter this space. And also how we think, myself included, how we think that we need to fit a mold. And what I mean by that is we think that we need to fit a mold of being this bro, you know, or being more masculine or dressing a certain way, like dressing in a way that like a man would dress like a blazer or like a suit or whatever, which don't get me wrong. Those, those things are really cute if you want to wear them, but I feel like there's not a lot of representation and there's not a lot of women that feel comfortable being in the tech world that are girly and feminine and like fashion and makeup and like to do their hair and film, get ready with me's and do hauls and all of this stuff. And I just felt like because it's mainly men that you're dealing with, you feel like you need to fit into them. Whereas 
Personally, I think the tech industry needs to be inclusive and accepting of all types of people. It is not just a woman versus man thing. It's so much more than that. But obviously, I can only speak from my perspective. So I want to make content not revolving around being a female in tech or a woman in tech, but, you know, just sharing my experience and kind of my point of view just in general being in tech. And I just so happen to be a woman. But hopefully that brings more representation in a way. Let me know if that makes sense, guys, because that's what I want to start doing. I really want to shift my content, not shift, but like just talk about it a bit more. And I know it's not for everyone. Like there's not everyone that cares about that, but I think I'm going to also attract a new audience at the end of the day if I do talk about that. And it's getting me a little more excited because I've just felt super burnt out and like in a rut with my content. And I feel like by doing something like that, which I really love, then it might help me get inspired and excited about what I'm making. And that's really what I want. So yeah, I wanted to kind of address that and talk about that. And it is very fitting because today's episode is with another woman in tech and we talk about it in this episode. I really want to welcome Yoki to the show. Yoki is the founder and CEO of Johanna, which is an independently led subsidiary of Panasonic, which is a much bigger company that focuses on creating consumer technology products to help people live happier and healthier lives. So Johanna is actually, if you're confused by that, it means that it's the first concierge service specifically designed to support busy families and it's now available. So literally like this week. So this episode came out at the perfect time. So you need to be sure to check it out. I'm so excited for Yoki and her team. And we talk a lot about Yoki as, you know, her childhood, like what she wanted to actually be a a professional tennis player. She actually was a semi-professional tennis player. She ranked 21 in Japan. She had to quit due to multiple injuries. And so her mobility actually led her to her interest in robotics and it motivated her to pursue a career in tech. So it wasn't the traditional, you know, she was always interested in it from a young age. She was actually doing something totally different. And now she currently leads global innovation and serves as the managing executive officer of Panasonic, which is so badass. And she has more than two decades of leadership experience as an executive, a technologist. I mean, she lives out her mission of building technology to help others daily. She's a wife. She's a mom. She's literally just so incredible. So I was so excited to have her on the show. And I think this episode is so, so good. It's one of those that I'll probably re-listen to, even though I don't like listening to my own voice. So in this episode, we dive into the art of delegation, balance, and prioritization as a successful founder, downsides of technology, and the importance of boredom in childhood, which you guys, I loved this conversation. We also talk about her journey into tech, her weaving her passion and mission into everything that she does, the reality of women in tech, and also the inception of Johanna and its impact thus far. I am just so excited to have Yoki on the show and she's a huge inspiration to me just after talking to her and hearing her story. There's so much more to her resume that I didn't put in this intro, so you need to listen to it to be like jaw dropped at how impressive she is. But anyways, let's welcome Yoki to the show and also let me know what you think about kind of my plan for my content pivot. Hello Yoki, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Yeah, it's great. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited. I think your career is incredible, like the career trajectory, the path. Love interviewing women in tech. So very excited to dive into this. But before we dive into the topics, we're going to start with setting the record straight. So that's assumptions, stereotypes. You'll let me know if they're true or false and your thoughts on them. So the first one is that in order to work smarter, you need to delegate. 
Yes, I think I actually really have been working smarter and smarter over the last two decades by delegating slowly. It took a lot of learning, but yes, it's definitely the way to go. Yeah. When you were first starting in your career, did you feel like you couldn't delegate because you just felt scared to delegate? Or I guess, why was it that slow buildup? Yeah, it was quite terrible, to be honest. So when I, so I had twins first, that was terrible. My husband and I both worked, we were both were professors and then we were not paid that much. So we felt we couldn't really afford that much help to begin with. And we felt like that being watched by somebody who comes into our house to clean the house, if, you know, our house wasn't clean, that's like embarrassing. As well as I was afraid of my mom saying, how could you possibly be a mother who doesn't clean your house? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of eyes, that judgment and then a guilt and the financial, you know, all of that was on top of that. But I had to really ask myself when I was really pushed to the limit of, you know, raising you know, babies and then going back to work and then scrubbing the toilet and then, you know, on the floor and cooking all the food and everything. And I thought, okay, there's no way I can sustain this, but I don't want to be judged. How can I do this? So first thing I delegated was cleaning and cleaning the house, but I cleaned completely first before the cleaner came for the first year or so. It was terrible. Like I just could not show my house dirty. So it took me years of training to even have a cleaner come and I feel comfortable showing my dirty house and then have them clean and be okay with the way they clean instead of the way I clean as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it with delegating in life and with work. Like one, you think that you can do it better. You know, oh, it's just quicker if I do it. I I might as well just do it. Another one is also that shame or guilt that comes with it of am I not able to do this? Like, why am I not able to do this? And then just the ability to let go and give it off and and trust the other person. So I think that with anything in life, whether it's with your career, with working, with hiring an assistant, with hiring someone for your team, and then also with your day-to-day, like with your family, with your cleaning, with cooking, anything like that, it's very mental why people don't delegate. Yeah. And you know what? Actually, one thing that I recently was thinking about, so there are things that I don't delegate on purpose because I like doing it. One is actually driving kids. I like those moments when they come home from school, I strap them in a seatbelt and then they cry about, you know, being teased or they get, you know, they're glowing about a test score or whatever it is and just catching those moments and that they're not distracted by technology. They're, you know, driving, I'm driving, I'm not distracted by technology. Those moments are really special. So I don't delegate. The other thing, I actually cut all my kids hair. I've never taken any of my four you know, kids to any place to cut hair because I like cutting their hair. It's also another moment of connection. So, you know, there are funny things that I always think about, like what are the things that I most people might delegate or not delegate? And then what are the things that I might delegate or I might not delegate? And I try to draw a good line so that I can keep things that I want to do to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's all about what you prefer, what you enjoy and like you said, you enjoy those connections and that's why it's totally fine to keep those. So I I really do love that. The next one is that to be a successful founder, you must be working all the time. (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why do people feel that that's true though? Like I feel, so I'm, to give you context, I'm also the founder of a startup. We launched in January. We've been working on it for about a year and I fall into that mentality of, I need to be on all the time. I need to be working all the time. I need to be go, go, go. 
And if not, then, you know, I'm falling behind. And I know that that's wrong. You know, it's easy to fall into that trap of working and hustling 24-7. Yeah. And, then you know, I think we do have to work really hard. But really hard doesn't mean all the time necessarily. And as a matter of fact, you know, I really interleave it with kids and, you know, all of that gives you that brain break that is absolutely needed to perform better. Do you think that the fact that founders feel like they need to work all the time, what are some ways that they can actually take that time off or take time for themselves or work smarter? Like how have you kind of evolved with that throughout the years? Yeah. So I think a lot of us are total workaholics and then have a bit of an issue, you know, sometimes removing ourselves and then taking care of ourselves. We often say we have to put oxygen mask on before, you know, putting on others. And I think we will not run the right company unless we're together to lead. So the way, you know, I've actually learned this is through having a coach. I couldn't do it on my own. I was becoming a you know terrible workaholic person. And I thought that working a lot would be the way to go. And working all the time is the way to go. And then it actually wasn't. And the coach made me make a me list. Me list is just a list for myself. And initially it had super simple things like run three times a week. And I even fought with her. She says, no, I don't have time for this. And she said, nope, you have to make time for that. I said, but why? She's like, you just are going to make time for yourself or else you are not going to be able to take care of everybody else. Just go ahead and try it, right? And it was insane. It was so true. The moment I started putting a little bit of me in my life, it doesn't have to be a ton. It could be an hour a day. But suddenly I was just a lot more centered. I was a lot more together. I was more calm. I was not mad. You know, I was able to make better decisions. It was just all around so much better. I like that. I'm going to start doing a me list. Actually, actually writing it down, I think, is different than just thinking about it. You know, it's like, oh, I, I need to have time for that. I need to do that. I need to add that to my day. But then the day ends and you just haven't done anything. So because I'm a big to-do list person with my work as well. So having in the to-do list things that you're actually doing for yourself, I think is a way to actually make sure to get it done. If you're someone like me who does want to constantly be checking things off like that. <laughs> you know, me list also having my coach who actually then asked me and say, so did you do it? You know, initially I wasn't because I wasn't convinced in my head, right? But I think once it wasn't written, once it was on the list, and once I had somebody checking on me, then I started doing it. Now I don't have to be checked all the time and I could do it, but it was really hard to get started too. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Heirs tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is 
the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 450 degrees, reduces and repairs split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration. And according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today as it should with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet, Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. The next one is a little shifting gears, but it's that technology can cause a lot of harm or unintended consequences. You know, I'm going to say yes on this one. So... I think that it may already be happening. I'm a technologist living in Silicon Valley, yet I don't have TV at home. I don't let kids have much screen time. And even last night, I was no, it was this morning, my son forgot to brush teeth and wash his face because he ran out of time because he was distracted with technology. So I actually think that there are a lot of, you know, un, I don't know, unintended consequences in people's lives. I also think that, so, you know, there are a lot of research out there saying like kids being bored is really important because they learn to be imaginative during that time. And they also have to be creative to figure out something else to do. Right now, like the most boredom has gone away. The moment anybody's bored, well, it's not really boredom. They're checking on their phone. They're mm-hmm. browsing the web. They're talking to their friends, right? So suddenly this the concept of being bored is not the same anymore. I think that is having a huge consequence also on people's development and brain function. 
Yeah, I didn't even think about that. How I mean, I always see I go to restaurants and, you know, you see like the kids with the iPad in front of them that they're not talking to anyone. They're eating and, and watching their show or like in the car or anything like that. But I didn't think that boredom is one thing that is what sparks that creativity, because there's so many times I look back at my childhood and I grew up in the age where half my life was, you know, with technology, half wasn't. I'm 26. So it's on that cusp of, <laughs> you know, I grew up playing with my neighbors outside and in the yard and and all of that. But then also when I was in middle school, high school, you know, phones were in, cell phones were introduced and smartphones and and all of that. So I, I, I kind of had like both sides to it. Yeah. But I remember when I was younger, when I would come home and I would be bored, that is when I would have find like my hobbies, you know, I would want to be an author when I was younger. So I would write books or I wanted to at one point I wanted to be an actress so I would like make skits up with my siblings and force them to play with me and that's what I did when I was bored which led to really like what I'm doing now I mean it, it led to what I'm interested in even today so I think like all of those little moments I had started a YouTube channel when I was younger because I was bored and even though that wow. has to do with technology it yeah. still was what were those moments where I was creating something or doing something? So th I don't have kids. So I didn't even think about the <laughs> fact that boredom is actually like very, very important in kids today. Yeah. And I know that you said that you are a technologist. You're living in Silicon Valley. When did you enter the tech industry? And were you always interested in it? Was that always something that you had wanted to go into? Or is it something that you discovered later on in life? Yeah, actually. So until college, I wanted to be a professional tennis player. I was a total, you know, athlete and just never thought that I would pursue academia or academic anything, to be honest. But in college, because of all my injuries and then when my tennis dream finally busted in my head, you know, I really liked math and I thought, what can I do with it? And that's when I really started to think about tech. I wanted to build a robot that could play tennis with me so that I could forever have tennis as my career, even though I can't move, you know? So I think that was the reason for like really motivation for getting into technology. But it was so fun. I just got deeper and deeper in it. I, you know, ended up getting an electrical engineering computer science degree. I even went to get a PhD in it. I even became a professor in it. So and it's been kind of a rabbit hole chase that's been really fun. Yeah. And when did you switch gears from being a professor to working at, you know, these large companies? Like you've worked at Google, you've worked at HP, Apple, like you've had so many different, really, really cool careers. So when did you make that switch? So in 2009, so maybe like 13 years ago, I've got a call from Google to, and then they asked if I could be one of the co-founders for a group called Google X. At that point, nobody knew Google X. It was kind of a secret name to, you know, really think about the future of Google so that if, when search and ads doesn't create as much revenue, what could Google be? So, and then specifically focus on physical matter. So, you know, robots, hardware, things like that. So that's the first jump into Silicon Valley and tech industry. The reason for the jump was because I was building technology for people. But when you're a professor, the product is not a company or a product that people are actually using. The product is actually more students who graduate and become professors and then write grants or journal papers, which people read. And I didn't want to continue to create things people read or student, you know, students who were going to become more professors. I mean, they were wonderful things, 
and they will hopefully transform the world, you know, far out there like a decade or two later. But I maybe I was running out of patience a little bit. I wanted to build something now for people who could potentially use the technology that I've been learning and then, you know, acquiring. So that's really the first jump into Silicon Valley. And since then, I've gotten closer and closer to the consumer. I've jumped also into a startup called Nest, which was building a thermostat for people. And that was really probably the very, very first brainwash I've received from research to how to build a product that people can use today and love because the experience is so great. When you did make that switch and you started, you know, being more consumer facing or, you know, actually started working with physical products, is that when you realized that that's kind of the path you wanted to go on? Because I know now you obviously have your own company, but did you always think like, this is what I'm going to do to gain experience to learn and then I'm going to go off and start my own thing? Or did you think that you were going to work your way up to these different companies and that would be your career? Yeah, it Sounds funny, but I didn't necessarily have a plan or the path that I thought that I wanted to follow. I simply followed my mission and passion. So my mission since I was in graduate school was to build something, technology that can help people with everyday life. That has been, you know, really the common thread. And the rest was really passion of Initially, you know, it's like I wanted to build a robot for people who had physical disabilities. I wanted to, you know, learn more so that I could build that. I wanted them to be naturally controlled. So I learned, you know, the brain and then so that they can just think about moving their body and a robot would move as if it was part of their body. You know, that's kind of the start of it. And then how to help people may have changed over time as I've gotten to know more about the industry, more about what users really need, what actually will be accepted in the field you know, I it's it's I will one day go back to building those things again. But building those things and become extremely successful business turns out to be really hard because the audience is small. The companies are not willing to build something like that for a really low cost. So therefore, there's nobody out there who could afford to buy those things. And it just it was just like a bad cycle. And I thought, well, how do I get into this? So I became more and more that audience has become more and more general mass. So that I can build something that everybody wants to use, need to use. That's exactly what they have to have to have better lives. So that's kind of where we are at Johanna. And then hopefully that by having acceptance in general mass will allow us to get into a little more niche areas for people who need it even more. Mm-hmm. So your mission and your passion, I think it's just so important because I think when things get difficult, when things are not you know, going the way that you intended them to go, I think falling back to that of why are you doing what you're doing is so important and falling Mm -hmm. back to what your mission is, what your passion is, what your purpose is, is so important. Do you think that that is what, because I know you said that your passion was to be a tennis player, but do you think that is what got you involved in tech at first and let you stick with it even when things might not have, you know, gone your way or gone the traditional path that you were supposed to go? Do you think that mission is what really helped you continue on that path and continue to build and continue to grow? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, life is super fun, but bumpy, right? Like there are great moments and then there's super hard moments. And I think the ways to get through and then just keep going and then, you know, keep growing is to have that thread of mission what you're passionate about, what you're learning and what you excel at, I think can change over time. And, and I believe that life is like a, you know, like chapter book. It has lots of different moments that you're passionate about. Like I was passionate about being a professor and, you know, I was passionate about being a building consumer product. 
And now I'm passionate about building, you know, this company is a CEO. Different, different phases are completely okay. But again, that thread, the reason for waking up in the morning, that thinking about the reason why you even exist here, these things are extremely important. And it also allows people to balance many things. So having kids, you know, if people ask like, what's one thing you wanted to do in your life? I would say having kids, you know, raising them. And the reason why I could do that and still have a career is because on those tough moments when I almost couldn't balance, which happens, I think I was like about twice a year, I think there's no way I could go on to tomorrow. There's just no way. And those moments, what gets me going again is the mission. Mm-hmm. It's that mission that, hey, like it is worth leaving those kids at home sometimes to go and kick butt at work because what we do at work will change lives of other people which just by raising kids, I can't do. There's only 27% of women that hold tech positions right now. And mm-hmm. I mean, the number is even lower for female CTOs, female CEOs, founders. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why more women aren't entering tech? Because I think a ton of women have a passion to help others and to make sure you know, the world a better place and to make the world easier for other people. But yet they're not necessarily entering in those tech positions that might contribute to doing that. Do you think that that fear of, oh my God, I can't do this is one of the reasons why? And I don't want to subject it just to women. I think that happens to everyone. But I do Mm -hmm. think that obviously less women are in tech. So what do you think that the reason for that is specifically? Yeah, there are so many causes. Actually, when I was a professor, I tried to figure out where this problem really starts. It's everywhere. There are no examples to follow. And I've read a lot of research basically saying that women in particular like to have mentors and examples. And then when they see it, they're like, ah, I'll do it that way much more. Um, The men, men can sort of bulldoze through. It's like, oh, I'm the only one. Well, interesting, right? But I think it's sort of women don't do that as much. I think that definitely inhibits the ability because there are not enough female faces at the top. People are not used to looking for women either. They don't think to look. They don't understand that they can find those talents even in a female population. So I think, you know, it's changing. Like there's a lot of training around unconscious bias and all those things. And it is absolutely changing. And I love the change. but you know, we can do that even faster and better. So I think that's kind of the landscape at the top. But when we start to go down to the younger education level, and I used to be obsessed with the middle school age group, because that's when girls start to need to look good for the boys or the, you know, whoever they're trying to be attractive to. And suddenly it's uncool to be, you know, STEM oriented. There's a a study by National Science Foundation says that if you're in elementary school, fourth grade, you ask them questions and said, who wants to be a scientist? 70% of boys raise their hands and 70% of girls raise their hands. And then they ask the same questions in the ninth grade, 60% of the boys still raise their hands and only 30% of them raise their hands for girls, right? So something happens between like the fourth and fifth grade and then a ninth grade. And I think that is profound in my mind. You know, this is not necessarily true for other countries, turns out. You know, there are a lot of countries like Eastern European countries. Actually, that drop doesn't happen and a whole lot more women are working in, you know, math and engineering fields. There's something that our culture have made, which made it uncool at that age group. 
And I've been trying to overcome that for a long time. Yeah, that's so interesting because I studied industrial engineering in school. So I have that STEM background. And for me, I remember thinking, I mean, my parents, so my parents are immigrants. So they come from different countries, which I don't think that drop probably happens. My dad's from Romania, so Eastern European. And then my mom's from Honduras, so Central America. But to them, they were both industrial engineers as well. So I had them as examples of, you know, being engineers. And I never once was told, oh, maybe you shouldn't do that because, you know, you're a girl, like maybe let's put you in something else or or anything like that. Like never once did my mom or my dad ever tell me that. But when I started deciding that that's what I wanted to do and I started telling people, I started getting the reaction of, really? Like you're doing that? Like that's so strange. It's so weird. It was a very negative reaction. Like it was, oh, that's cool. But like, that's also like, I wouldn't expect that of you. Like it made me feel like, wait, am I able to do this? Like if, if everyone is telling me that this is odd or this is weird or or they'll tell me like, oh, you know, there's not a lot of girls that are doing that, right? Like what, really? That's so shocking. And I think that's where I never doubted going into it, but it was always a, why are people telling me this? Like I never grew up with this doubt or this hesitation. There's no, you know, it's not like girls' brains are smaller that they can't do something, you know? Like it's, right. we're, equally as capable. So I never understood that reaction that I would get. And then when I had guy friends that were telling their friends, oh yeah, I'm going into engineering. No one said anything. You know, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. That's nice. And I always thought that reaction stuck with me for so long. And I hated that reaction that I would get because it made me feel so much smaller or like I, I'm less capable of, even though I know I wasn't. And so I think I don't know where that shift is, like you were saying, but I think that reaction of making it so shocking and so trying to dismay women or girls to get into the STEM field or making it feel like, oh my God, that's going to be so hard for you. Mm-hmm. That is a huge problem with women getting into STEM. So I, I really hope that that changes too. Yeah. And again, it's going in the right direction and we can do a lot more. I think one other really interesting thing that I've learned by reading a paper is that Apparently for boys, if they like something, they could be getting a C in it in a class. And then they're like, you know, I'm getting C in my math, but I still want to be a mathematician. For girls, apparently they have to be getting really good grades on top of the class for them to feel confident to be going in that field. And that also has this bias already of like, yeah, like if everybody's getting a B, boys are like, yeah, that's my that's my thing. Like, I'm going to do it. Girls will be like, no way, I can't, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. So that's even that is really interesting. Like there's that it's okay. Like I want to tell a lot of girls out there and say like, you're getting a seat, but you like it. Okay. Like let's change your, you know, teacher or school or whatever. Like let's join like a club where you can build something that's not related to how you learn in class because it is okay. Do you just getting a seat in a class, you know, feel necessarily well, but if you like it and you feel passionate about that field then keep pursuing it because it will become something and we need you. I love that. Yeah, because (laughs) I definitely in school had got some bad test grades sometimes, you know, there were moments when I could have been like, okay, maybe this isn't for me, but I'm (laughs) very glad that I stuck with it and and got my degree in. But also, I mean, I know you left the corporate world, you left, you know, Nest, Google. I mean, you're, I know that you're still an advisor for some of these companies, but you started your own thing. You started Johanna. Why did you decide to start your own startup, enter the startup field from 
square zero, like starting from the very beginning. And were you a parent at the time that you decided to start this? Was this something that, you know, was kind of like a light bulb moment of why doesn't this exist? I'm going to exist it or how did it start? Yeah. So, you know, I've done different starts, but, but this one, Johanna was started three years ago and this is after I've gone through large companies, startups, and then have seen from different angles. Uh, working for large companies are amazing because, you know, once you build something that ships, it's, you know, for Google, it's like billions of people will use it, right? And it's very much rewarding in that way. But also that a large company, things happen slowly. Yeah, there's so many people that you have to get an agreement and I get an alignment and I'm trying to move and I have to get a budget and then like, oh, you don't have headcounts this year. Wait till next year. So, you know, things just happen slow. So that's large companies, right? And smaller companies, that's your own startup. It's your own road that you're building. You can go as fast or slow as you wish. If you want to screw up, then it's your fault. But if you want to succeed, then you will succeed. And, you know, just it's completely at your own pace, at your own thoughts. And then, you know, all of that is absolutely amazing, which is hard to get in a large company. But it's hard to get that scale that large companies have, even at Nest, which was like a unicorn and, you know, did amazing. You know, four years later, it was sold to Google and it was nowhere near near where it could reach if it was part of Google. And that's the reason that we you know, went into Google. The thing that I wanted was that autonomy to move towards the mission of helping people as fast as possible because every, you know, so many people need what we're building. So we felt that we wanted to do it with the level of autonomy. However, so Johanna is actually a subsidiary of Panasonic. Panasonic is funding us fully. So we could say that, hey, hey, that's part of a large company. So I purposely arranged it this way so that they will leave us alone to run like how as a startup as fast as possible. But when we needed that scale, they're here to help us scale. And I actually think that, you know, more and more of the future innovation will come from this new structure where innovation within a large company, where the large companies are learning to provide that startup-like environment where the founder-like people are able to run really fast. So that's, you know, mm -hmm. so I think that's that's really the reason for starting. And then I also, was I a parent at that moment? Uh, yes, I had four kids. It's, again, it's like impossible. <laughs> completely, <laughs> completely, completely impossible. Even right before I started when, you know, other work was winding down. And then, you know, when things wind down a little bit, life slows down a little bit and fills with home stuff. And, you know, I noticed so like my window was broken, you know, my car needed, you know, help. And then all my kids like behind on school. And then I was so busy every day. And I thought, how could I possibly put work back into my life? It's It was just running something which I have to really care for and spend all my brain power doing. And I definitely had a moment of doubt that can I possibly fit that in? But it's interesting, again, sort of going back to the mission, there are ways to delegate to, there are ways to make sure that, you know, you rely on your spouse and, you know, others to create that moment to, you know, sort of life advice into the interesting balance where you can actually do it. So, yeah, it's it's not an easy thing. And that's why we created Johanna too. Johanna is supposed to be almost like all of those pain that I've gone through and things I've learned so that people don't have to 
experience that again. They can actually just get Johanna and then delegate. We're even here to, you know, help answer some of those questions for them. Like, how do I balance? How do I delegate to my husband? Okay, let's do it. We can give you a little proposal to figure out how to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. And I mean, did you have the idea because you were, you know, a parent yourself, you were being like, how do I do everything all at once? Is that where the idea sparked? Or was it like a light bulb idea? Or how did it come to be? So I think, you know, I've, again, I've kind of been in a tech fields, building tech for people with who I felt couldn't quite live the life exactly how they wanted to. And that sometimes was physical disabilities or, you know, and turns out that pandemic hit and then suddenly all of us were kind of in that we couldn't have that life that we wanted because work and family life and everything collided. And as we were marinating on different ideas about how can we build that technology to help people and during pandemic, it has become super obvious that there's this thing right in front of us that we keep ignoring and building some super advanced healthcare tech or super advanced, you know, like prosthetic device, but we need to help ourselves here <laughs> and help right here. And yes, my experience has gone in a tremendous amount. One of the things that I really feel is a way to build a really good product is to study the user to death, really understand what their true pain points are, and then make sure that we are addressing those acutely. So, you know, really just understand that and understanding it really well also comes from being able to relate to it or that you're a target audience yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, I felt that I could absolutely relate to it, meaning that I can build a technology using also my own experience and intuition, not just random facts that I'm learning from a paper in, you know, abstract sense. Right, right. Being the actual user is, I think, gives you such incredible insight. Before you launched, I know you said that you need to understand your user really well. So was it before you even started the company, you started talking to parents or how did you begin to understand your user aside from your own experience? Because I think that's where a lot of people that want to start companies, they know that they need to talk to their users. But was it surveys, interviews? Did you go to their house? Like, what did it, <laughs> what did it look like? So I've, you know, this is the user experience research UXR that is extremely, extremely important to do a good job. And yes, so, you know, throughout my career, I've had different moments in studying different types of it. So it was getting narrower already in my head of my knowledge. But the moment I started that Johanna, we immediately ran a study with families in three different countries, US, Japan, and China. And to really understand globally, what are the things they're struggling with every day? And especially targeted, you know, families with kids who were, you know, just balancing daily life. So yes, we interviewed, at this point, we probably, you know, exceeded a thousand people. But at that point, so often the study goes like, first, we kind of do wider survey just to filter out, should we be asking these questions? Should we be asking like, what's the interesting area? So wider net, you know, sort of higher level questions that narrows you down to the point where you do want to and have to go into people's homes and then ask questions. And sometimes you might have to even take pictures of certain life, you know, moments, their room, 
where things are happening to understand a product that you might want to build. If you're building something for their kitchen, then better understand how their kitchen layout is like, right? So you really need to go and then talk to them. That's the interview phase. You can't do interviews at great scale, right? So that's tens of people, at most hundreds of people usually. And that's exactly what we did. We send people to go to China and Japan and you know also US and not only just US and like some you know sort of hyper focused area like California but everywhere right so that we can get as much diverse view as possible and then collect that and says what's common about this what the problems are and then then also I do the intuitive check like is that something that I really relate to the other really important one that's really interesting when people are doing you know that user experience research is that how to ask question is so key. If you ask questions wrong, you get the wrong answers, you get the wrong conclusions, mm-hmm. and then it's all over. So, you know, we it's very, very important and spend time thinking about what questions are the right questions to ask. If you already know the answer, don't ask, right? Like, but if you actually, you have to ask the question you don't know, but ask it right so that you get the, you know, precise thing that you needed to build the product. Yeah, no, I think talking to users is so important and understanding users is so, it's, if you don't have that, you don't have anything. You know, you don't have a product, you don't have a business. Did you notice, did, was anything unexpected? Like, was anything from your user experience or user research, things that shocked you? Because obviously you are the user as well of Johanna, but were there other experiences that kind of you didn't relate to that that were really surprising? Yeah. So I think the thing that was surprising was how universal the struggle was and struggle was real. You know, I sometimes, you know, during pandemic and we're all living in a very tiny little place ourselves and and we forget how others are also struggling. Right. And what I quickly realized is like, wait a second, the whole world is feeling the same thing. It's not just the U.S. It's also Japan. It's also China. And the kind of things they're struggling with happen to be the same. It's insane. Probably one of the biggest things that we noticed was everybody's stressed about what's for dinner tonight all day long. (laughs) It doesn't matter where you live, right? And that question that, you know, so you don't have kids yet, but, you know, kids ask questions around five o'clock, mommy, I'm hungry, what's for dinner? And that's like the most annoying question that you could possibly get because it's like, I know I've been thinking about it all day too, (laughs) (laughs) right? And it it happens in every country. And and, then when people are working until the last minute before dinner, that's the last thing you want to do. You're like tired. You just want to go home and chill out, you know? And, but no, like we have to make dinner. And and the dinner not only just is something to feed our face, but it has to be nutritionally balanced. It has to be accommodating kids' likes and dislikes. It has to be, you know, allergy, you know, friendly. And you have to also consider what's in the fridge still that may go rotten and what you don't have that you might have to go shopping for. And so all of that together is a huge cognitive load that the entire world and family and everybody basically bear. And I thought that finding that was really interesting. But of course, there are a lot of other things we found, like, of course, everybody's struggling with cleaning their homes and then logistics, calendaring, right? we found a lot of things that just happen to be common. Yeah. And how does Johanna solve that? Did it pivot from when you started to what it is today? You know, it's interesting. I think pivot is one and narrowing down is another. So 
you know, originally we started out a lot broader. We weren't sure exactly within helping everyday life, like how can we really be helpful? And also target audience was initially fairly broad. We weren't sure if we wanted to go into really young people, really, you know, much older people and, you know, just narrowing and then just constantly tuning. Also, there are constraints from the engineering and then the actual operation side coming in. It's like, what? You can't make that? And it's like, okay, well, if that doesn't fit, then we can't serve these population or we can't have this as main feature. So there's like a both sides come in and it starts to marinate to get to what it is at the end. But yes, from the moment that we start studying to the moment that we shipped was like a little over a year. And we we certainly have narrowed it into exactly what we ended up shipping. Yeah. And have you seen the change in, in people's lives with using Johanna? Like, is that something, because I know you were going back to your mission and your purpose. Is that something that you've seen from your users? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's why I wake up every morning, go to work. So I hear from families saying, Johanna has become part of their family. Johanna has saved even eight to 10 hours a week of their you know, time so that they can use it for their family. And they feel lighter because of Johanna. All these comments are exactly what my mission was. And all of us here, like here at Johanna, we're here for the mission. So those words, those testimonials, them, you know, and they come in every week, all the time. And we actually read them out in our company meeting so that people can hear it and then why we're here for it and then what makes us really thrive and make things better over and over. But yes, absolutely. We're solving that real problem for people right now. I love that. That's incredible. Yeah, we have a Slack channel with our team where it's called like nice customers. And we're always <laughs> adding on there, like anytime we get a good review or a DM or an email or someone tells us something that like Rella is helping them, we'll mm-hmm. screenshot it and post it in there so that we can always look back at them. We can always, we see who those people are. And it's just encouraging because if you're building something that people don't like or don't use, it can be discouraging very, very quickly. So that's always the thing that makes all of us like kind of have that extra wind of of energy. Absolutely. What advice would you have for women who are looking to start a business or grow their career, but they do have a lot on their plate? So whether they're parents or not, they just feel like they have a lot on their plate, but they want to excel in their career, start something. What advice would you have for them? It's funny. So I was actually giving a lecture at Stanford last night and then almost exactly this question came up. And my advice for this is that it's never a good time to do anything, you know, whether to change the career or to have kids while you have career or, you know, to start a new career, like start a new career while you have kids. Like it's just, if you wait for that moment to come, because, you know, now it's bad, but in a year or so, or two years or so, it's going to become a better moment. It's not true. That's myth in my mind. Mm -hmm. There's never a better time. So you just have to keep doing it is really my advice. So you have a lot on your plates and then in balancing and then, you know, should you take on an amazing career or start a company? Absolutely. Should you wait till your kids are a little older? No, don't wait. (laughs) If you wait, then, you know, that time will not come. So Mm -hmm. that's the really important part. And then sometimes it feels impossible. And if it doesn't feel impossible, then everybody else would have done it anyway. So, 
you're trying to break out and then do something amazing and amazingness requires overcoming impossibility. So yeah, I, I love that advice. I totally agree. I, there's never a right time. Like there's never like, oh, this is actually perfect. Let me just start today. <laughs> like there's, and also you can't predict it. You know, if you're thinking that the right time will be next year or at a certain point, you know, when that time comes around, something else will probably have come up that makes it not the right time, quote unquote, you know? So I totally agree. I think it's always best to just start. And I always tell people, I mean, I'm in a different life stage than obviously, you know, having like a family and and things like that. But I always tell people that want to start something. The first thing you have to do is, is honestly just start, like start talking to people, start researching, start talking to potential users or customers, start, you know, just start the process and it will snowball into something. And, you know, but I think it's, if it's just as always like thoughts in your head, like it's never going to become anything. You actually have to do something and put pen to paper and actually get something done to begin. Yeah. And actually realizing that wasn't a good idea is also an incredibly important process to go through. And multiple failures are the almost like the only reason for the success to come. So I think being afraid this might not be it. So therefore I may not jump into it. No, jump into it and fail really quick, really, you know, for, and so that you've actually learned something from it. And next time you have actually something else that's going to work out, you don't make that mistake anymore. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that I feel we often forget. I think now that I've gone through and then look back and some of those things that felt like the worst mistake are almost like the best moments that I've gone through and the reason of my existence. So yeah. So that's another thing. Just don't be afraid. Fail. If you think it's a bad timing, still do it. (laughs) Exactly. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Yoki, for coming on my podcast. This was incredible. I always love talking to women that have kind of done what I'm trying to do. So I, I really loved this conversation. Where can they find you and where can they find Johanna? So you can find us and become a member at johanna.com. As a matter of fact, we launched Nationwide a couple of days ago and we are offering promotion until the end of the year. Uh, so feel free to sign up. You can find us at Join Johanna on Instagram. And also, if you want to find me, I'm also on Instagram at Yoki Matsuoka, my full name in one word. My name's a little hard to spell, but if you you can put two Ys, Y-O-K-Y, then you will find me. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Yoki. This was incredible. And I really loved chatting with you. Me too. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed and don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey, my name is Lovan Roomf, and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here, and vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.